Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. If you noticed a change in our theme tune this month, that's because we have an exclusive interview with Nikki Spence and Emma Bell coming up ahead of the new ENO Ring Cycle. And that you just heard was the orchestra of ENO in full force. Joining me in the virtual studio this month are the director Emma Black. Hello, Emma. Hello, David. How goes? Yeah, good. Going, going well. Um, I actually saw some opera last week live, which was joyous. So yes, very well, thank you. What did you? What did you see? I went to see HMS Pinafore at ENO and just wept with happiness from start to finish. It was very bizarrely, very emotional. Good. Well, if if Pinafore doesn't fill you with joy and you know delight, then what's the point of it? Uh, I'm also joined as well by the composer Michael Betridge. Hello, Michael. Hello. Great to be here. GNS, that your sort of your sort of bag is that what you're hoping to emulate through your your music? I mean, a little bit. If you don't quote GNS as a composer, what what are you doing with your life? <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a musical director of a GNS society many years ago, so it does hold a very special place in my heart. We're going to crack on then because there's lots to get through this month. Um, so we'll start with the latest government budget that was announced uh, last week. A huge news that theatre tax relief is going to double over the next two years. Uh, that means that companies who are putting on new productions can claim back 50% of the cost that goes into making that work. So that's millions in tax relief for the opera sector. Um, but the promised arts premium to invest in creative activities in schools uh, was sadly nowhere to be seen. I mean, Emma, I suppose, you know, fantastic news on one hand, disappointing news on the other. I suppose in terms of this arts premium, you know, we already know that a lot of young people miss out on, a, on an arts education in schools. And with everything that's happened over the past year and schools having to concentrate on on, on other things, you know, I suppose that the scary news is potentially we're, we're looking at a kind of a lost generation almost of young people that just don't have access to to the arts. Yeah, no, it's... um. It's, it's 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 scary and you know i was i was thinking about you know i had a very i had a very privileged um music education um in that there was just i think from about the age of six in my school we were offered lessons um individual lessons and it was part of kind of core core curriculum and i think we did uh, even in primary school we, we did kind of end of end of year musicals i remember being in you know, like Bugsy malone and things like that and actually that that seems to be falling by the wayside and you're right this 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 lost this lost generation i think i think the um the tax relief is as you said is 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 brilliant but if if that's happening at one end of the of the arts spectrum you need to also be looking at kind of yes you're right kind of the 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 youngsters who are not getting the access that they so desperately deserve i mean michael if i can make you chancellor for for a moment i mean where's Where's your money going when there are decisions to be made? I mean, you know, what what's your kind of thoughts on this? Yeah, I echo everything Emma's saying. The big thing for me is that, you know, it's great there's tax relief and there's great that, you know, our government is supporting the arts. But if we don't have that pipeline, if we don't have people coming through and people having the opportunity at a young age to experience this, A, there won't be people making this work and there won't be audiences for this work as well. And um, for me, it's all about... You know, I feel this government that, you know, in many ways they have supported the arts to a certain extent throughout the past 18 months, two years. But it's all about right at the top, those who are making, those who are making money rather than kind of what many of us are in this for, the love of making brilliant stuff and connecting with others. So I would always be supporting, you know, lower down where we know there's, um, there's, there, there's not enough opportunities for young people and communities. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, part of the hope might be that with a doubling of, of theatre tax relief, you might want to use that to invest in, you know, education and outreach stuff. But, you know, I, I, I agree with Emma. I think, you know, when things are actually there in your in your school on a on a day to day or week to week basis, you know, that's where it kind of makes the most the most impact. So the good and the and the, the not so good news from 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 that budget. It can't escape anyone's attention that uh, this week was the start of the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow uh, and Glyndebourne have used this to announce their net zero ambition over the next few years. The company are already well known for their environmental credentials, not least their wind turbine, which you can't miss if you go to uh, East Sussex, uh, which creates 105% of their annual energy needs. So a phenomenal investment they've already made in that and they're, they're doing even more. I mean, Emma, do you think opera is taking the climate emergency seriously you know my my social media feeds are always filled with singers 
flying out for competitions and auditions and obviously companies are always bringing in people for work I mean is is opera taking it seriously enough I think I hope so yes is what I'm gonna say yes you're right the, the flying is a big is a big thing um and you could argue that you know if this country had slightly better trains then um that might help quite a bit um but I think kind of the if you say that you, you know it, we are an international art form that's that's just what we are and that is brilliant uh, that we are that um and if we can find if we can find better ways to if we can find ways sorry to offset the carbon footprint of say like bringing in a singer from from the states uh i think that's always uh, that's a good way of kind of looking at it i know coming up in the winter season at opera north there are china uh, which looks or like just the, the plans for it already sound phenomenal. I am slightly biased because it's reuniting the dream team of director Tim Albury and conductor Lawrence Cummings, who did the coronation of Papaya a few years ago, which was just the best thing in the world. Um, but the designer Hannah Clark, uh, I think it's the whole thing is going to be 100% sustainable. I think she's using found materials and it's and and that kind of visit. They they're very much they're using that as kind of to see. I think to see if they can do it and. And look, therefore, looking at how they can actually make the productions sustainable, um, which is, you know, no bad thing. I mean, Michael Emma there said that opera is an international art. I mean, is is that just something that's going to have to change? Yeah, I think it's the train thing as well, isn't it? I mean, we're an island nation, um, and there's one way to catch a train out of the country as well. And if if you're working in Europe as a performer, you know, it's going to take you a, a long time. But there is this big thing about slow travel now. I mean, I wonder how opera companies can think about their scheduling and how performers you know this international approach maybe there can be something in the future about thinking about right if this if this performer is doing six weeks here and then six weeks here or maybe one-off concert maybe the idea of slow travel that people are talking about can really impact on flying um, or you know making sure we are traveling in a sustainable way for example I think the big thing that I take away from Glyndebourne, uh, Glyndebourne's initiative, but also Opera North and other organisations, is that a lot of this is about nudge behaviour. And if we're talking to our audiences and we are making people aware about how we can be more sustainable, you think about how many people are reached by opera, and you know, Glyndebourne do some phenomenal work in terms of participation and engagement, but much of their audience is very wealthy and they are perhaps potentially more likely to be the people who are going to be taking international flights. So a lot of this is about our responsibility as artists and organisations just for it to be on our mind and be um, mindful of what we're doing to the planet. And I think it's great that Glyndebourne and Opera North, who are doing some great work on this, are really shouting about this and putting it at the front of their practice. Yeah, and I think you made a really key point there, Emma. I mean, flying is a really easy thing to, to look at because we all know how bad planes are but you know the, the productions the amount of money and resource that goes into making works that might be seen once once or twice or or, or whatnot and then get stored away or, or sometimes thrown away you know actually how we make work is is really important so works that uh reuse things or that use technology in new ways you know there's a lot of digital backdrops and, and that sort of thing i think it was was it last year or the year before that the scala in, installed this sort of huge led screen that now kind of does a lot of the the scenery and you know kind of things like that there are all sorts of creative ways of getting around it which hopefully for a you know director such as you, yourself you know will have all sorts of new um possibilities in the future uh, talking about flying around all over the world for competitions we've got a bit of a competition roundup this year's operali competition was won by victoria karkacheva and ivan ion rivas uh, no European finalists in the competition this year, which was a, either a rather odd quirk or a worrying trend. We shall we shall see. The soprano Hilary Cronin won this year's Handel Singing Competition, joined in the final by Felix Kemp, Kieran Rayner and Bethany Horrock Hallett. And Vopra won the Opera Award at this year's RPS Awards, which were held last night. Now, the Royal College of Music Museum has recently reopened following a £3.6 million renovation. Open six days a week, it contains items from the college's collection of 15,000 instruments. Um, Michael, is there something, particularly from a compositional perspective, uh, that's useful or interesting about these old instruments, or is it, is it just a, a curiosity? I think it's always exciting. You know, as composers, we think about sound all the time and thinking about what that sound means and, you know, connecting to our past as well. I don't know. I haven't, I'm just trying to think if I've used any old instruments in previous compositions, but 
I guess one big thing is um, limitations of these instruments as well. There's particular parameters and that's always useful as a composer to kind of flex your kind of creative muscles when you're limited by certain pitches or certain way things are played. Yeah, I suppose from, particularly from a conductor's perspective as well, looking at older works and, you know, thinking about actually some of the practical limitations that composers might have might have dealt with might give you a bit of a different perspective on on things. Emma, to kind of put you on the spot, I mean, it's always struck me there's no national music museum. There's, you know, very sadly, of course, no sort of uh, national opera museum. I mean, you know, kind of what, I don't know if you've been to any kind of international music museums or whatnot, but what would you kind of like to see from this, from this sort of thing? If you're going to go to go to an English music museum, you know, kind of aside from a wonderful display of weird instruments, what, you know, what sort of things would, would float you about? Well, so you're right that there is no, there's no national music museum but a couple of years ago uh the vna did an incredible uh opera exhibition which i went to um i think they picked it was seven productions um and kind of took you kind of through like the history the history of opera um and it had things that i mean i just i could have i could have spent like three days there it had like mozart's manuscript for something because they yeah they, they the one of the operas was, was figaro um and they had like his like his actual like working manuscript that he'd used to conduct from um and it had lots of videos of lots of different productions um and it had model but it had model boxes of various opera like people had don people had donated model boxes for various various productions um but it's it's that kind of like looking through time like michael was saying looking at these old instruments uh and kind of seeing like these these people were we're actually people and we're working musicians and kind of seeing like, I always love that kind of like the archival stuff, the papers. Um, so I think there was also um, a score of handles that had like his scribbles all over it. And he's like, well, yes, he was actually a man that had a job to do. And this is that kind of, that kind of stuff I love. So I, I'd, I'd love like a museum of manuscripts. It sounds like that's what I'd quite like. And actually I live very close to you and I must say I've never been. It's called the Musical Museum down in Brentford. Um, which when I first moved here, I thought, I, I'm a very big fan of musicals. I thought it was a museum about musicals. And actually what it is, and I really should go, is it's um, musical instruments that can play themselves. There is also the Horniman Museum as well, isn't there? Uh, which has musical instruments from around the world, oh. which is in South London somewhere. I can't remember oh. exactly where. That V&A exhibition was phenomenal. I, com I completely agree. I was, I, I'm... This is a really uh, sweeping statement. I'm not a big fan of museums. I, I, I'm not one of those people that can spend, you know, a day in a museum. But that exhibition was just phenomenal. I think for me, yes, it had lots of great um, archive materials and bits and bobs, but it chose those operas and took you through the story of those operas. So not just how was it composed, but what was going on politically, what was going on socially. There was the, was it the Shostakovich? Yes. It was, well, was definitely one. A, Mont a Monteverdi, was it Papaya? Or was it Orfeo? It started with. I think, with it, was, I think it was Papeo. There was definitely a handle as well because it had that huge handle one. Yeah. Huge model of a handle set where you could see the yeah. the ship as as it would have been in sort of the scenery. Yeah, it was yeah. it was just fantastic. Yeah. But it was that bringing together of the music, but also its its context as well. You know. Yeah. I just yeah. Thought and then I think the the final room was just videos on a loop of productions from all over the world. Um, and the thing that I remember, uh, there was some footage we got from Grimes on the Beach, which was just wonderful. Um, but yeah, it was really yeah, and and there was like and there was a Katie Mitchell production as well that was up there. And yeah, I think I sat in that room. I think I watched them all through. So yes, and it was a phenomenal, phenomenal exhibition. Um, that kind, of, if that kind of thing could be more permanent, that would be that'd be great. Well, let's let's start it now. Is the campaign for the National Opera Museum? Let's 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 get it going. I'll find a couple of hundred million pounds. Let's make it let's make it happen. Very sadly, over the last few weeks, we have uh, lost a number of, of huge figures from the opera world, um, including the conductor Bernard Heitink, the composer Carlisle Floyd, and the translator Amanda Holden. Uh, now, it's not often that a translator becomes uh, an operatic household name, I, I suppose, but you know, Amanda's translations were, were loved by audiences, not just here in, in England, but all around the world. Uh, I mean, you know, Emma, as a, as, a, as a director, I mean, what makes a good translation? And what is it about Amanda and, and other fantastic translators that that just make them stand out. I mean, yeah, I think it is, it's a huge loss to the to the opera community. She was right. She was a legend, is it, and continues to be a legend. Her translations, especially her comic translations, are so 
funny. And I think that's that's the thing with translation, especially for comedy, is that you need to get the jokes across. Um, I have a massive soft spot for Kit Hesketh Harvey. His um, his Murray Widow and his flute are both, I think, hilarious. But he gets he gets the jokes he gets the jokes in there, especially in all in all the Papageno stuff. It's it's properly it's properly funny. Um, I think you have slightly with a if you're um, translating a more dramatic dramatic piece, you have a slightly bit more little bit more leeway. I think as long as you that's probably you want to focus more on that it can be sung and that it sounds it sounds beautiful. Whereas for comedy, uh, you need to get the jokes in. And, and Michael, as, as a composer, I suppose, what, what are you looking for in in the person writing the the words or the words themselves? I mean, what, how does that work with you? I think Emma touched on it, like especially in translation, um, it's it's the sound quality as well because some vowels, you know, I've been told. I remember when I was young composing and setting all this kind of really high stuff on E's and really close sounds and you know sopranos and tenors would well sopranos especially would groan at me and over time you realize yeah actually that doesn't serve maybe what you're trying to trying to do as the composer what you're trying to get across I think with translations though I mean you get so many or I've seen some in the past that are so um kind of exact and so close to the original and sometimes you know that feels like you're doing the right thing to serve the author and the text but you're not serving the narrative and drama and the music does so much in opera as we all know it's why we love the form and i think it's a very malleable form and actually a translator's job a good translator's job is to make sure that the feel is really there and that's not just what the words mean but it's the story the character and the overall sound so that's what I'm always listening out for in translations. Does it kind of capture the feel of that moment? Yeah. So I mean, a, a very sad loss for the for the opera world. But you know, whether composer, conductor, or translator, what I suppose is wonderful is that their works always live on through performance and and, and recordings as well. So um, yes, uh, sad, sad news. But we we will have many many years, I'm sure, of enjoying Amanda and and all the others' uh, work. Listen out in your podcast feeds very soon for another opera cast as we review the new Netflix film Falling for Figaro. This film sees a successful financier quit her job to retrain as an opera singer in the Scottish Highlands coached by Joanna Lumley. So you can watch it now, it's on Netflix, and let us know your thoughts ahead of our review coming up uh, in about a week's time. Michael, Scottish Highlands, Joanna Lumley playing an opera coach. Does this sound like your sort of cup of tea? Fabulous. <laughs> now, I was trying to think, I, I actually can't think of any other, and I might be missing something really obvious, but kind of film or TV show that foregrounds opera in this way. I know we had, Amazon recently had this thing called Mozart in the Jungle, which was about a conductor. But, you know, where opera is kind of front and centre, I, mean, I, I can't think of anything. I mean, this, this if it's a good film, uh, and we'll see, um, you know, I mean, potentially this could have a, a huge impact actually yes yes i've not watched it so i can't i can't comment to it um i think there was the film quartet probably yes. about 10 years ago ah, yes. but i don't know if that was specific i only watched it once uh it was more i think opera was at the heart of it but possibly also it's more kind of um classic just classical music in in general um but that but that had some lovely uh kind of old time true old timers from the opera community kind of just singing in the background I think with three three little maids is, is my main memory of that, of that film um yes but no I think anything that brings opera to the forefront uh is always good um because it's actually we can we can get stuck in our own in our own kind of little niche our own echo chamber and actually it is it's it's a universe it's a universal art form it's there to be enjoyed by everyone Absolutely, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to to, to watching it. So we'll uh, watch along at home, and uh, say let us know your thoughts, and we'll uh, we'll be back in your podcast feed very soon. And so now here is our exclusive interview with the tenor Nikki Spence and soprano Emma Bell ahead of the new English national opera, The Valkyrie. Before we kind of start, just let us know where are we in the rehearsal process for Valkyrie at the at the moment? Kind of what stage are, are you guys at? Oh, uh, Nikki, we're about a week five are we and so we've started um tentatively running scenes and great big swathes of um 
of what we've rehearsed so far, which we've done in um, minute detail and uh, finally sort of piecing all the jigsaw pieces together. We're on the precipice when all of the factors fly together at great speed, costume, stage, orchestra, all that kind of thing. We put together our, our plan and now we have to execute it with fire. So you haven't yet heard Ride of the Valkyries from the orchestra. We're not quite at that stage yet. No, but mm -hmm. um, Monday we start with the we start with the, the Zitzprobers, and um, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it seems awesome. such a terrible thing to say, but it, it is always our favourite bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's <laughs> the, the moment when you know you're on um, you're on the final stretch, isn't it? Yeah, super. So. Um, Nikki, from, from your perspective, I mean, you've gone from vaccinator to Valkyrie in a, in a relatively sort of short space of time. Um, you've had a very busy summer and now are mounting this, you know, major new ring cycle. I mean, how have you found that that transition back to back to the stage? Well, I've been pretty lucky that I've been really quite busy when I've not been um, stabbing people joyfully. I have been doing lots of singing online. I'm a bit of a hustler. As soon as the, th the theater started shutting, I was into hustle mode. I was doing all kinds of things, obviously the, the vaccinating, but I was doing recitals online and I was lucky to do operas outside with Blindborn. And so I feel like had I known I was going to be so busy, I would have had a bit more of a rest. But I did take some cross-stitch and we were getting ready for our wedding. So I've been doing wedding administration till it's coming out of my ears. Anything you want to know about confetti, I'm your man. But yes, it is a bit of a gear change. I've been discussing this with Emma. Suddenly going into what is quite a, an epic tale from uh, pretty much cold is quite overwhelming kind of vocally, but more cerebrally, especially working with Richard as he, everything is so well directed. Everything has a thought, everything has an angle and it's specific. It's almost kind of clinical. So in a way I've gone from clinical vaccinating to clinical singing, but it's all very good. Uh, I mean, Emma, how much is, is COVID still something that's kind of talked about in the rehearsal room or are you all trying to sort of kind of put it to the, to the back of minds or is it, is it still very much there? I think uh, bearing in mind we all come in on public transport is very much at the forefront of everybody's uh, conversation. Um, no, obviously, if you're not in the scene, you're masked in the rehearsal room. All the stage management are still masked. Um, Richard is masked. Um, and so it, it is very much at the fore. Um, and we're all very, very conscious of staying healthy. In fact, I think we didn't go out last night. That must have been very difficult, very especially for opera singers, so, you know. <laughs> not go out for a drink you know to be quiet there the gear change going to going to you know press the flesh as we call it after performances and rehearsals that's kind of like you know the final act of your job it's very important to kind of decompress and so I, i've really missed that but we have been swabbing one yeah. another several times a week to stay safe because we put so much work into this it would be devastating if it fell at the final hurdle I mean, as you say, you're working on this this major new production, co-production with the the Met in in New York. A new ring is always a cause for excitement in 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 the opera world. I mean, what can audiences expect from this from this new production? You said you've been working in minute detail. What is it? What is it all leading to? It's not a particularly kind of operatic production. We don't have a small scale version of Nuremberg or anything like that. It's much more of a, I suppose, I would say, kind of a dystopia a kind of very bleak landscape, wastescape almost, where the attention's really allowed to live on in the drama. What Wagner was so good at was setting his music to be like a play. So it is very much about the interaction towards uh, the characters. So, and that's what Richard Jones is amazing at as well. So it's been a real pleasure to rehearse something so well. Yeah, absolutely. For us in that first scene where, where we're in, the, in our dinky little hut, the claustrophobia of the situation, a marriage that I'm stuck in, um, you know, uh, a man that comes out of nowhere and nearly fills the, the room, you know, his presence, it's, it's, really, um, it's really quite something. And like you say, the dystopian feel. Um, good for singing in a hut. Um, the set's going to be good acoustically. Um, modern dress, we're, we're a bit jeans and t-shirt. Yes, not a bustle in sight. Feels, and it feels like something special because we're all 
it's kind of homegrown talent. We're all British, all together working on this new British ring. If it's got a real excitement about it. We were saying yesterday over cake and tea, which yeah. is also very British, how exciting it was just to work with people who, you know, are, are gorgeous and we all understand the same references and obviously Opera is an international sport, but it is very special to do something homegrown. Uh, you know, that it's in English for us all. There's no, there's no, you don't have to segue into anything else. It just, uh, it, well, we actually do. We segue perfectly uh, from chatting in the canteen to the language of our opera. And hopefully that's what the audiences experience, you know, the sort of, the, the brilliance of being at ENO is that the immediacy for everybody. Yeah, well, I, I did want to ask, ask you about that. What you were just mentioning then, Nikki, I mean, what, kind of stands out on paper when you look at this as it is a, a pretty much entirely British cast, you know, yourselves and and, and Matthew and Rachel and, you know, it's, it's a fantastic ensemble. Um, I think ENO, something like 90% of the performers this this season are either British or, or kind of based here, which is which is fantastic. Um, I mean, I mean, do you kind of both think that, that UK companies and festivals actually kind of do enough to promote British talent rather than sort of necessarily flying people over, you know, as, as international as, as opera is, you know, do you think we could be seeing more British singers perhaps on uh, in this country? I feel as if ENO do a super job and really fly the flag well. And just talking from my own experience, which I can, because I'm me, I have been nurtured by ENO. I was a young artist for seven years, which is kind of unheard of. I was a young artist until I was no longer young. And then I was, you know, we would lovingly gave each other the boot. But I've really been nurtured since I was playing the novice in Billy Budd up until doing larger roles recently. And I think this is my 10th role, 11th role at ENO. So I'm really lucky that I've had this relationship with them. And I think they do a great job. And we're so lucky to have such incredible British singers. There's a reason why I think our colleagues get hired across the world. You know, I think we're known to be well prepared, to be good actors to be up for things and not too precious. Would you agree, Emma? Yeah, 100%. Like you, I mean, I've had a relationship now with ENO throughout my career. And um, and I think that there's a there's a sort of a, no matter what happens in management terms or it, it there's a there's a loyalty and I love being at the Collie. I, I mean, I really, really do. You know, it's uh, it feels like coming home every single time. So we should say that you are Siegmund and Sieglinda in this uh, production, notoriously uh, challenging roles vocally and, and dramatically. Uh, I mean, is kind of the taxation of a role simply how many notes there are and, and how big the orchestra is? Or is that an oversimplification of kind of how difficult a role is to, to perform? I try not to think about a role being difficult or hard or long, because I feel as if it's so character-based that you get on the the ride at the beginning and you see where it takes you and then before you know where you are you're at you're at the end i mean obviously there are vocal demands but i think if a part suits you well then you those are easily surmounted i think sometimes a simpler piece or a, a piece of mozart for example which wasn't the right fach could be even harder than something which fits you well so I try not to listen too much to the noise that it's really difficult because otherwise I might start thinking it's really difficult. <laughs> but you do have that sensation when we did a run of At One and you get to the end of quite a big bit and you think, oh gosh, there's another big bit just around the corner. But actually, if you if you do pace yourself well and the Colosseum's a fantastic acoustic to do music drama in and we've got a sensitive conductor, so I think that all of these things will be married well and it will be a, a joyous occasion. Oh, and what about for you, Emma? Because I know like many singers, you know, kind of careers starting out with those kind of Mozart roles and moving into, you know, the what's known as the heavier sort of rep repertoire, I, I suppose. You know, kind of for you looking at, at, at something like Siglinda, is it, does it kind of seem as though it's kind of going to be something taxing or is it just about finding the right role for, for where your voice is and kind of where you are in your... Your career? Yeah, I think that I've always um, had a trajectory and I've done certain things, stepping stone roles um, that uh, sort of make a clear path really to where I am now. And 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 I suppose in, in that respect, it's no surprise to me that I am now singing Zieglinda. I've done, you know, I started with my Ava and then, um, you know, I've gone, I've worked through the through the ladies. And um, I, I agree with them. Um, I agree with Nikki. I think 
looking at something in terms of whether this is going to be hard or not. I mean, I, to be honest, I take anything off the shelf. The first, the first read through, I go back to being a child and, and assume that it's going to be virtually impossible for me. And clearly I haven't got any of the notes and I'm going to, the, you know, and then of course it unravels and you start to, to find your way. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's the inner game of tennis that's important really. <laughs> Yes. I mean, with kind of where both of your respective voices are, you know, you're often uh, playing those more dramatic characters, we say, you know, the the, the Wagners or, or, you know, kind of whatever it might be, which which kind of might run counter to your sort of personalities, I suppose. Um, I mean, is, is it fun to live in that dark, dramatic world a lot of, a lot of the time on, on stage? Or do you kind of sometimes think you'd rather be sort of prancing around in, you know, some Rossini or, or, or something? Oh, no. Well, I'll butt in quickly there. There's no, absolutely, this is where my heart is. And when I'm lying on the floor and I'm not really involved in the scene other than to be hugged or embraced or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, yesterday tears came. I was in tears. This music is just so <laughs> exceptionally moving. It courses through your every vein in your body. It's um, it's, it's, extraordinary. it's extraordinary. It's where I want to be. Nikki? Yes, I've sung a fair amount of Rossini in my time and... I have some natural prance, you might say, about <laughs> prancing. But I think it was Brian Cox of Succession fame said that, you know, the devil gets to play the best tune. And I adore playing repugnant, horrible characters, often seen murdering, you know, raping, pillaging, that kind of thing. It's really exciting. That's very far, obviously, from my personality. But that's why we're actors. We get to play people that aren't ourselves. But um, in terms of the Wagnerian, language actually the way that this valkyrie go is going it's quite naturalistic in a way so that's that also has an immediate entry point i think it's not in you know kabuki style or anything like that it's very relatable so i, I find that really thrilling i mean in terms of performing those those characters then you said that richard jones works in this very sort of minute style it's very kind of naturalistic i mean just kind of try and take us into that kind of rehearsal room i mean what does that kind of process look like working with someone like Richard? I mean, how, how do you kind of go about working on a on a scene? I mean, try and, you know, kind of set set the scene for listeners, how that kind of works in, in practice, uh, Emma. There's a great deal of stop and start. At the beginning, it's, um, I think, whilst he's working out how you are going to work with him, um, the first week, certainly, from, from my perspective, was an, an awful lot of no, no feet legs um uh, where's your eyeliner how do, how is your body going to be held trying to find um the truth the the essence of a scene um and to be completely immersed in the here and now there's there's no projection of sort of um feeding your scene with memory with recollection of how a thing feels it has to feel like that in that very moment and i think the immediacy of a scene of the here and now and with sarah um choreographer and assistant to to richard it's been it's been wonderful looking at how how your joints how everything um is reflecting now uh, Nikki, I mean, it was interesting what Emma was saying there about, about kind of the choreographer. When we hear choreographer, we think you're going to be doing, you know, kind of big, big dance numbers. But, you know, often it kind of means something very different. So I kind of, again, for listeners, just, I mean, what, what does that kind of mean in this sort of context, having a director and having someone that does either choreography or, or, or movement? What on earth does that mean in, in a Valkyrie? I mean, I do love a big dance number, but sadly, there is none to be seen in this particular piece. Well, Emma does a bit, but... It's much more to do with the emotional language of movement. And I find as an actor, often the key to a character is working out how that character walks or moves on stage. But in terms of Sarah's job with Richard, they work really closely together. It's much more to do with what comes across with your body, because we can do something and think that it's giving one message, but actually it's not giving as clear a message as it could if your body was in a slightly different angle or i guess as emma was saying with each turn of of drama because wagner is quite expansive there are moments where the drama turns on a sixpence but there is a lot of kind of like languid beautiful music as well which is quite easy just to kind of fit into that style and actually it's to keep the emotion true throughout all of that movement and throughout that music and it's very 
easy to try and fill the gaps with acting or overacting, which is sometimes what happens with this repertoire. So trying to do something true um, is so much to do with uh, the movement and how you portray yourself. Mm. And it's sometimes about moving against the musical instinct, you know? Um, mm. When we when we use the word choreography or write, it it has um it has implications, and I think it's movement. It's it's everything about your character's physicality. And, and when you think about what Richard might be wanting you to do, or kind of a movement director, I mean, are they are they always conducive to to singing, or is that uh, sometimes a negotiation that has to uh, that has to go on? Oh, I think very it's very sympathetic. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Richard, goodness me, he knows he knows more about our singing than we do, I would say. <laughs> I think, you know, he knows voices. He doesn't want people to do anything that compromises that. Um, although I suspect in the heart of every single director, they'd really rather... <laughs> they could ask you to stand on your head. But no, yeah. it's, uh, it's very, very sympathetic. And it's our job to make it work in a way, either way. Whatever yeah. they're asking to do, to try and see, yes, I can do this, I can't really do that, but to give it a good go. Whilst I have both of you, I just want to ask you briefly about uh, another couple of uh, upcoming Eno projects you, you're involved with. Um, I mean, Nikki, what can you tell us about Anyone Can Sing, this new sort of operatic reality show that, that you're in, involved with that Eno's got a, got a major hand in? What can you tell us about that? Well, it's an absolute hoot. We are sculpting the larynxes of the world. And we've taken six members of the public who had never had any contact with singing or opera before, and we're trying to unlock the mysterious art of opera. Because I think lots of people have an idea of what opera might be, but actually it does take a very special set of skills in terms of you know athleticism, vocal, dramatic, collaboration, all of these skills which people don't realize go into opera. So we're handing the key to these folk who have never sung before and actually just having them experience this idea of singing. And they have might have had narratives that they were told they can't sing as children, or they find it difficult to sing um, because of neurodiverse issues. But actually, it just shows that the act of singing is really glorious for people in general, and it gives you a real endorphin rush and can help you mentally. So I think it's been a lovely journey, and I've, I've actually learned a lot about it myself and a lot about what singing gives me so it's been a real a real joy and is there some sort of wonderful culmination moment you know are they all going to be you know coming on as, as valkyries or we're we not quite sort of at that sort of you know moment at the end of it we're not going that far but they will <laughs> be featured on the eno stage singing solo that's all i can say and in the grand finale moment and it really it will be very touching Fantastic. Looking forward to it very much. Um, and, and Emma, you're coming back on the Coliseum stage next spring in Handmaid's Tale, um, another yeah. very dramatic uh, dystopian um, um, opera. <laughs> I mean, lots lots of people will know the book. Even more people will know the TV series. I mean, what, what is the opera bringing to this story? What, what can audiences expect from the Handmaid's Tale, the opera? Well, um, it's uh, a mighty soundscape. Um, I'm not quite at the stage where I'm I'm off my score <laughs> because it's uh, a little while off, and obviously I'm I'm immersed in the the Valkyries. Um, I'm going to play Aunt Lydia. So um, anybody who has read the books or has seen the show knows that I am the most horrible woman. <laughs> Uh, and her music so far is um, is proving to <laughs> reflect that nature <laughs> very, very much. It's, um, yes, brutal. Brutal is her part and brutal is her music. <laughs> but I, I, I imagine, I mean, obviously it's with Annalise and I, I've never worked with Annalise. She's somebody that I've admired so much and I'm so pleased to be a part of her first um production here at eno in um yeah i look forward to it very much you know we haven't we haven't actually had um the the model showing or any uh any any sneak preview um i suppose they're going to have to learn uh have to look very very closely at how to um hang people <laughs> you know it's going to be a, uh, how do you how do you kill all these people on stage it's going to be a carmelites moment isn't it <laughs> 
It, it should be said there is there is much lighter fare in the Uno season as well. I think Pinaf- Pinafore yes. is about to open, so there is some variety. But you know, if, if dystopia yes, is the thing, there's something for there is, everybody. There is more to look forward to. Absolutely. Um, finally, I just wanted to ask you both briefly. I mean, you're you're here at the Coliseum, but you're all you know singing all around the world on on the major the major stages. I mean, do you kind of both see yourselves as having you know made it as such, or, or do you think that's kind of a dangerous place to sort of get your get your thinking into i mean nikki kind of first to you i would say what is making it i've made something generally a mess in my kitchen i mean i I, when i was younger i always wanted to be famous and now i just want to be quite good at what i do so i think as soon as you've had some success or you've enjoyed something then another pasture opens so it's it's the Duke of Edinburgh Award that never stops singing. And I guess it is all determined in what you find as, you know, success, what you define as success. For me, it's having a balanced life, um, hopefully having family and um, enjoying time with my friends and that kind of thing, as well as singing. I don't think I'd be very happy if I was just singing, but very happy to be doing lots and to have lots in the diary for the future. So yes, happy person. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely made it. <laughs> no, I agree with him. I think that um, to say one has made it. Yes, I've worked in beautiful, beautiful houses around the world. I've had wonderful experience. I've made wonderful music. And all of those things are are why you, you embark on this career to to sing the, this music. So in, in that respect, yes, it, the mission accomplished i've i've sung lots of operas in wonderful places but i agree completely there comes a point where there's there's a holistic approach and um some sort of work-life balance um how you bring up a family <laughs> um mine's just gone off to university so i'm 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 looking forward to the, the freedom of shutting the door and, and not looking back for the first time in, in my career but um no i think you can't really quantify have making it have I have I paid my mortgage? <laughs> you know, <laughs> hopefully given some pleasure along the way. Nikki and Emma, thanks very much for joining us. So thank you very much to Nikki and Emma for joining me, and to English National Opera for organising the interview. The Valkyrie opens in just a week's time. Uh, I've got my tickets for the seventh of December. Really, really looking forward to it, especially after hearing from Nikki and Emma about the production. English Touring Opera received much criticism last month when it was revealed that around 50% of their regular freelance musicians would not be employed for their spring 2022 season. The reason given to them in private, though not publicly communicated by English Touring Opera, was that the company was under pressure from Arts Council England to make their orchestra more diverse, something the Arts Council rejects. Uh, Now, Michael, we're all advocates for increasing the diversity, the ethnic diversity in opera on our stages and in our orchestra pits. Um, But, you know, this does seem like an extremely heavy-handed way potentially of, of of going about that yes I, I think i mean i don't know the ins and outs of what's happened behind the scenes um and we as you say we all believe you know in this need to make sure that our stages represent the the, the width and breadth of the uk you know we want our arts sector to resemble what our country looks and feels like i think our challenge constantly in classical music is, again, we've mentioned this before earlier in the podcast, kind of the talent pipeline. Mm-hmm. You know, learning an instrument is sadly not as perhaps inexpensive as other art forms. You need to have an instrument, you need to be provided with that. And there are some phenomenal schemes out there. But um, we're all responsible for this, you know, conservatoires, music colleges, um, music education, music services. And there's some great work going on out there already to make sure that you know, there is wide access, but there's so many invisible barriers. Um, And yes, it does perhaps feel a bit heavy handed um, from what I understand in terms of the ETO kind of hiring the system, you know, what we've been describing, but there's a wider issue and we need to be pushing um, absolutely access to the arts for younger age as possible. So we don't get into these moments later on at professional level where, you know, there's kind of yeah this heavy-handed approach to kind of what does diversity look like we shouldn't have to worry about it at that point we should be fixing it at the bottom and making sure you know access to instruments and music education is open to as many people as possible 
Yeah, very, very true. I mean, Emma, if we weren't aware already, the, the pandemic really highlighted how um, precariousness freelancer employment is. You know, is this just another example of the, the reality of being a freelance musician that, you know, you're employed one season and, and, and not the next? Yeah, uh, yes. I mean, freelancing is, has, always been, has always been precarious. It's become even more precarious. Um, and yes, but I mean, there is, I think, if, especially if the, because I believe each orchestra, it was all, it's all freelance contracts. So just because you have played for them for 20 years doesn't necessarily mean you're going to play for them in the next, in the 21st year. It's because that's the nature of a, of a freelance contract. So it is, it's a very kind of tricky tricky area I mean I uh, you know the last the last 18 months people you know some people have left the business completely some people have found second jobs third jobs just to, to support um and and it, people who, you know I know I know singers who are married to other singers and they've had a really tough time um singers who are their partners uh, are not in the business um have had a slightly easier time and that is just that's just the nature of the nature of the beast, and I really wish, really wish that it wasn't. Um, but free, I mean, freelancing. It. Well, I when I started in this industry, I had a full time job. Um, it was in it was an arts administration, and I loved it, and I learned so much. But I knew that I wanted to pursue a more creative career. So when the time was right, I went freelance, and it was definitely the right the right decision for me. But looking back, I'm like, oh, but I did, you know, the security, I've never felt completely secure ever since. And that was seven years ago. <laughs> and and you, and you get to you get to a certain point and you start to look and you're always looking ahead. That's just the, na the nature of it. But it's like, at what point does, at what point is this no longer become sustainable? And I think that's, that's always the question that's kind of hovering on everyone's, on everyone's mind um, and kind of, because it's, we've talked about this before, David, there is never enough work for just for anyone. There is never enough work. Um, and there's now even less at the moment. Um, I don't have any answers to this or any solutions. <laughs> but yes, it's been it's been a rough old road. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a subject we'll, we'll talk about in a, in, a, in a second, the idea of trying to give a bit more security to, to, mm. to freelancers, you know, kind of uh, uh, potentially. But it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. You know, I obviously hope very best for English touring opera and, and the orchestra, particularly for the for the spring season. There's going to be a lot of eyes and and ears on them. Um, kind of, I suppose this this did receive a lot of criticism. Sadly, was picked up by a lot of, um, what should we say, more right uh, thinking leaning people, not necessarily from from the opera world. So there's a lot of shade thrown on English touring opera when when this was announced. So um, yes, uh, hopefully all works out well for the uh, for the spring season. We'll keep an eye on this this story as we get into the new year. I also wanted to to mention something else I saw recently, which was a, a review of Julius Kovetsky's new album, The Soprano, uh, which was in The Telegraph. The critic Simon Heffer making reference to her exotic heritage. Now, not only is exotic heritage this rather odd sort of old empire sort of turn of phrase, but but Julia's born and bred in London. Her, her first language is, is English. An apology was made by the editor, although, again, very odd that he thought it was important to point out that the review was positive. Um, not that that really has anything to, to do with anything. I mean, Michael, the reason I wanted to kind of mention this was that, you know, yes, it's another example of rather insensitive and rather sort of odd cultural commentary. But but for me, it speaks more broadly towards this generation of classical music sort of gatekeepers, I suppose, you know, critics, administrators um, who do seem to be falling behind the times. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting thing about kind of, you know, a voice is a voice and, you know, we all have preferences for what voice it is. There is absolutely, as we know, no need to kind of make comments on heritage, you know, and what that means. That doesn't impact um, in terms of what the voice sounds like and what it does, unless unless the individual wants to explore that and is it specifically yeah. said, this is my lived experience of X, Y or Z, and I'm bringing it out in the repertoire. Um, I mean, I do find, you know, reviews and criticism and a very valuable part in many ways of what we do but and it's easy for me to say you know I generally ignore it because if I'm creating work personally that I'm pleased with I'm pleased with it and people can make comment as they wish um, but equally I think there is this push we've seen it a lot recently with um, Norman Lebrecht as well kind of the needing almost clickbaiting almost kind of mm -hmm. going as far as kind of 
um, trying to get attention for the wrong reasons in these articles. That's 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 how I kind of feel about the thing. A voice is a voice. Let's enjoy it regardless of, um, you know, anything. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's important to pick up on these kind of seemingly little things that just kind of keep cropping up because these are things that we need to we need to be aware of but you know in kind of more promising news in terms of a big gesture um, the royal opera have announced that they're going to be reviewing their repertoire of past productions to take into account what they have described as flawed past interpretations um, they've said that to ensure we present these stories in a way that is suitable and enjoyable for modern audiences uh, we'll be consulting widely to ensure the royal opera house takes account of all cultural sensitivities in its staging casting and presentation of much loved historic works and um, now emma when i when i read this i thought this was a, a huge statement for them uh to make you know it's potentially a lot of old productions and and repertoire that they're going to have to be be looking at but it's quite clearly at the forefront of their thinking making sure that the royal opera's output is appropriate for you know as they describe modern audiences yes no i think this is if, if they are true to their word this is great this is huge um and about time too, I also feel, uh, because actually, if you're looking at what is seen as as the, the more problematic end of the repertoire in terms of who who you cast and who you don't cast, so we're talking about Butterfly and Otello um, and Turandot. None of these works were actually written; they were all written by white men. So all, already, there's something to be explored there in that actually they weren't created by the people that are then represented, meant to be represented on stage. Um, so it's it does definitely feel like a step in the right in the right direction. Um, there's been a lot, I feel, I've not actually seen it, but I gather that the WNO New Butterfly tackles this brilliantly and that it's not really set in Japan. I think there's, 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 the, there's the essence of Japan, as if I've not seen it, it's based purely on reviews and photos, but they've kind of stripped the Japanese away, uh, the, the Japanese setting away from it. And then you can then cast whoever you want, which is brilliant, because then, as my, yeah, then, and then you can cast voices based, based on voices, not on, not on um, colour of skin. I mean, there is a question there, isn't there? And again, we've, we've spoken about this before, but it is an important issue as to if you want to try and take these older more challenging works and make them relevant to today. I mean, how much can you sort of shave off it and and kind of still have that original work? Actually, is it not better to look at other works or or Michael make new ones, which I'm sure will be music to to your ears quite quite literally. I mean, on on that on that theme, I know something that's caught your attention, Emma, has been this uh, Samoan ring cycle that has has just opened in in Putney. Um, there's a London-based arts collector called Gaffer who are run by singers of Samoan heritage and they've uh, started their own ring cycle with the staging receiving a, a Samoan twist. Uh, Mark Valencia, the critic, writing on Twitter, the Putney ring shouldn't have flown, but it did. Das Rheingold had me in pieces, beg for a ticket. I mean, Emma, is, is this kind of that prime example of what we hope is true, that the best works can be adopted by people from all sorts of different backgrounds and, and, and cultures and actually the works can kind of survive in their, their own right, but, but taken in new ways? Yeah, completely, completely. I actually live quite near Putney and I'm seriously considering it's Valkyrie this weekend and Valkyrie is my favourite of the four. So I'm, I'm seriously considering getting myself down there. Sounds, pheno sounds phenomenal. And what I love is um, it's kind of like the trumpet fanfare calling calling the audience in. It's a conch, which is a, which is a kind of Samoan, from a Samoan ritual. Um, you're right, if, kind of, if the work is good enough, the work transcends setting. And you can and you can put it wherever. I always joke that I mean it's not a very funny joke. Sorry, apologies, everyone. Um, you can put Figaro anywhere. You can put Figaro on the moon as long as there are three doors. That's all you need for Figaro. You just need three doors, and the and and the, and then the setting. You can do whatever whatever you want. Um, so yes, no, I think yeah, the Samoan ring. It sounds phenomenal. And we don't blink when we do it with theatre as well. Um, as well, we kind of, you know, Shakespeare, we talk about this. Shakespeare is always set in a myriad of settings. Whenever you go and see a production, it can be, well, if it's not the globe or whatever, it's, and that can be um, beautiful to experience. I think opera is actually an even better art form for exploring different lived experiences and different settings. And yeah, I think 
I wish I was in London. I wish I was going down to see it because it just sounds like something so fresh, invigorating and just imbued with kind of a different perspective, which mm. opera, mm-hmm. when it's at its best, does really well. Well, that leads very nicely on to our final news item, looking at things in a, in a new way. We mentioned earlier about freelancers and the, the um, precariousness of the freelance profession. Um, iPod Opera have, have announced their new kind of artistic vision, renamed If Opera. They're going to be creating a repertory company each season, focusing on young artists and those trying to make a comeback to the stage after a period away. Uh, they say the company worked closely together over a period of two or more months in a nurturing, egalitarian and intensive way, growing as artists through a process of hard work and regular day-to-day creative and professional development. Um, now, Emma, this sounds good. I mean, I do wonder, I suppose, you know, if you if you have a contract for a summer festival or, or you know, Glyndebourne, you, you're somewhere with paid work for, for, for two or three months. I mean, is there something about this that does make it kind of sound different to your normal sort of festival contract? Uh, yes, and it sounds um, like a like a company, uh, like a true like a true company. Um, I you, what can happen at festivals is that uh, kind of works are presented kind of back to back, and therefore kind of like the little ecosystems that are attached to each production don't necessarily get to mingle with other productions. Um, and you're kind of aware of what's going on, but you don't kind of get that um, like kind of creative back and forth. This sound, I mean, for starters, this just, just as a concept is is brilliant. And actually it's, it's following quite, a, quite an old theatre model that was, I think was very much, uh, uh, was was ubiquitous um, after the war, after the Second World War, where as, an, as a young actor, you would join a rep company and you would do two plays a week and we just just churn them out, churn them out, churn them out, um, which just sounds like a dream to me. And that, that kind of constant, what are we doing? If what are we doing this week? Um, the closest I've come to experiencing it, I was involved in the great season at Opera North, where it was six one-night operas, and no individual artist was in just one. Everyone was in at least two, um, which was and, and therefore and that season really felt like a company season. Um, so and, and there's just something something about it kind of knowing you're in one room working on something and then going get to getting to go to another room and working on something else and actually the the creativity that comes from that and just the bouncing around of ideas, you cannot put a price on that. So I think what IFID are doing, um, sorry if what if opera are doing um, I think if if it goes, this is this is going to be huge. Um, I kind of want to be involved. <laughs> I don't know about you, Michael, <laughs> or even just to be a fly on the wall and just see kind of what 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 their daily what their daily activity is. Absolutely, I feel there's kind of lots of questions. I mean, I, I read through um, read through what they're up to, their vision, and I love it. But I'm curious about what comes of that and that makes me really excited when you know there's so many questions and not many answers i think emma i don't know if you've experienced this but jumping off what you were saying in terms of building a company you know you may have you may have your six weeks to rehearse a production but a lot of that start of that can be building your company building a language building an understanding and i think some of the aims of if opera in terms of really connecting with their performers i'm just gonna one of their um what was the, one of their manifest line from their manifesto uh which i loved if we make great performers we make great shows mm. and i kind of just thought Yes, because if if you let your performers, if you let the people on stage, if you really nurture them, support them, allow them to experiment and explore, it's going to create electricity on stage, which can happen when you've got a six week rehearsal period. But, you know, we've all been to those productions where it doesn't quite land. It's beautiful. It looks great, but it's just missing that electricity. And that is really exciting for me as an audience member as well opera that is and stage work that is truly electric and i only think that can come from real connection so good luck to them i can't wait to see what what they um produce well as you said emma you know this this really is a is an old idea i mean if uh, if you didn't catch our uh, august podcast uh, where we were talking about the history of, of, of opera in britain i you know, do have a listen because this idea of a repertory company you know in, in opera was, was a huge thing companies would tour across the uk they do six or seven different operas a week in each venue and the singers would be doing Figaro one day and then they'd have to do Turandot and then they'd have to do the Gypsy Baron and that, you know. So it was not only were singers different in that day in terms of being very happy to turn their hand to seven different types of repertoire, but it was a proper company that went and did all sorts of all sorts of bits and bobs. Um so yes, I mean 
the idea of the company is very interesting. You know, the proof will be in, you know, what does that repertoire look like? What sort of events are they going to be be doing? You know, fantastic possibilities there. So we look forward to to staying with that. Um, we did interview Michael and, and Oliver a couple of months ago. So check back in on that interview and we'll look forward to catching up with them to find out when, uh, when there are more plans in place announced next year. Now then a quick roundup of what you can enjoy on TV, radio and cinema over the next month. Glyndebourne are going to be launching their own streaming service featuring all of their past productions. It's going to be called Encore and it's available from the 1st of December. The Guildhall School of Music and Drama's double bill of Viado Cendrillon and The Miracle Doctor is going to be streamed in a couple of weeks' time. Cendrillon featuring a new orchestration. Opera Holland Park have got a new uh, film version of Walton's The Bear, directed by John Wilkie and conducted by John Andrews. That's available from next week, Pay As You Feel. Um, a piece I know that's quite dear to your heart, Emma, Walton's The Bear. Yes, uh, it's the first opera I ever directed. I'd done operetta before that, but I did, I did a lovely... I think it was lovely, um, lovely production. Um, gosh, many many years ago now. It's it's a cracker, and it's it's rarely done because it's it's a it's a one actor. There's only three singers, so actually, it's not going to fill houses. Um, so I think putting it on film is is a brilliant idea. They've also they've reunited the cast of Susanna's Secret, which was a huge hit for Holland Park a few years ago. Um, so just, yeah, which actually kind of continues the company ethos of um, they know that these three singers already worked well brilliantly together in one production let's let's put them in, in another yeah so the, the the trailer looks fantastic as it's pay as you feel from the opera holland park website uh, music theatre wales have launched the first three films in their new directions program commissioning contemporary opera for more diverse creatives they're a really interesting uh, bunch of films so do pop on their website or youtube to look at those and finally the royal opera's yenifer is available to stream for free from friday and now then, on to the quiz. So inspired by the new Netflix film Falling for Figaro that we've already spoken about, um, I decided to have a little look on the International Movie Database to have a look at how popular certain composers have been in terms of their music featuring on the soundtracks to film and television programs. Uh, so Michael and Emma, we're going to play a little game of play your cards right or higher or lower. Um, I'm going to give you the name of a composer and then I'm going to give you the name of another composer and you have to tell me uh, has their music featured in more soundtracks to films and TV shows or less uh, than the other composer? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Should be quite straightforward. Emma sounded more confident in the rules, so we'll start with you, Emma. Um, so your baseline composer is Beethoven. Okay. So please can you tell me, has the music of Hector Berlioz featured in more TV and film soundtracks or less than Beethoven? I'm going to say less. Less. So that's one point to Emma. Beethoven, 1,705. Berlioz, 101. Uh, so that's one point. Uh, so next, we are looking at... Where's my piece of paper? Here we are. The works of Puccini. Have the works of Puccini featured in more or less soundtracks than Berlioz? This is for me or for Michael? This is for you. So we're going to keep... We'll, we'll keep oh, gosh. going. Okay. Uh, well, Puccini is, I mean, I feel that I hear One Fine Day all the time. So, yes, higher, higher. Higher is correct. 568 for Puccini. Next is Johann Strauss. Has the music of Johann Strauss been in more soundtracks or less than the music of Puccini? Is this the same Johann Strauss who does the Blue Danube? Is it that Strauss? It is that Strauss. Waltz is... Everywhere, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to say higher. Higher. You'd be correct. Nearly double, 1,106 <laughs> for Johann Strauss. You've got two more to go before you get full marks. This is very exciting. <laughs> um, so next is Rossini. Music of Rossini, more or less than Johann Strauss? Oh, that's really tricky because I know the Barbara of Seville is, again, everywhere. I'm going to say higher. Higher. And that's where this journey ends, I'm afraid. It's less oh. than 818 <laughs> for Rossini. Um, the final one would have been Handel. Handel more or less than Rossini? Less. It is less. Um, well done. So you've got, th you got three in a row. So it's three points. Well done. Um, so, Michael, we turn to you. Uh, so your bass composer is Richard Strauss. Uh, okay. And can you tell me, has the music of Mozart featured in more or less soundtracks than Richard Strauss? I'm going to guess more. <laughs> more. 
Uh, I mean, that was quite an easy one. Absolutely knocks poor Strauss out of the park. 1,807 for Mozart, even more than Beethoven. Um, next, Bizet. Bizet, more or less soundtracks than Mozart. Ooh, less, but, but, but then, mm. I'm in yeah. 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be brave and go less. It is less. It's a lot less. 500 oh, really? for Bizet, 1,800 oh. for Mozart. Okay. Uh, very good. Next, please, is Gustav Holst. Has Holst been in more or less soundtracks than Bizet? Oh, Mars, though. Just the planets in general. Yeah. I'm going to go for more. You're going to go for more? And that's where your journey ends, I'm afraid. Oh. Holst, Holst is only 118 compared oh. to Bizet's 500. Um, you then would have had Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky compared to Holst? More. Tchaikovsky, way, way more. Um, and then your final one was going to be Verdi. Verdi more or less than Tchaikovsky? Less. Less is correct. So overall, you did score the same marks, but because Emma got three in a row, Emma takes the prize. For this month's quiz. Um, so thank you. And thank you to imdb.com, the font of hours of just random scrolling and and, uh, and, and clicking through. Um, good game, good quiz, good podcast. Thanks very much, Emma, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, David. And lovely to see you again, Michael. It's been far too long. Far too long. It's been great to catch up. Thank you, Michael. Not at all. My pleasure. Log into Netflix, watch Falling for Figaro, and we'll be back very soon with our thoughts on the film. Until then... Goodbye.